0: Jesus, thank you that you've given us your word um, and that it all speaks to us and it all speaks to us of you. Uh, It all glorifies you by the Spirit's power. It all uh, holds high the name of Jesus and leads us to be more like him. Lord, we want to pray today as we approach your word that you would give us clarity, um, that you would be growing us as your people uh, as we have a clearer view of our Saviour. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, What do... Trivia quiz. We're opening with a trivia quiz. Because this is clearly such a trivial passage. No, it's not. But what do author Douglas Adams, the band's Powderfinger and Coldplay, have in common? If you don't know who any of those people are, or some of those people are, please just smile and nod. Anyone? Anyone? So, we've got Douglas Adams, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, if you will. Uh, Powderfinger, uh, what are they famous for, anyone? Darren, you know music. Uh, My Happiness. My Happiness. You know, slowly creeping back, Um, uh, never mind. Uh, And Coldplay, has anyone heard of Coldplay? Come on. Uh, (laughs) uh, Yes, Archie has, good. Um, No, uh, both of those bands uh, wrote songs titled Don't Panic. Uh, and in Douglas Adams' iconic book, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, written on the actual Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy in the novel, are uh, the large words, don't panic, uh, as the, the all-purpose piece of life advice. You ever noticed how helpful the words don't panic are? Um, not very, that is exactly what I actually have written right here. Like, <laughs> uh, When you're panicking and someone says, hey, calm down, don't panic, like yeah, if anything, uh, I think that, you know, it gives us the, it, it, both the instinctive reaction to that, as well as possibly the rational reaction to that, is to panic more. Uh, because, because if someone's telling you not to panic, there's a fairly good chance there's a good reason to panic and that they're trying to calm you down in the face of that. I'm sorry if I'm, I'm triggering anyone and, and, and giving you an anxiety attack here. Today, we're stepping into a don't panic bit of the Bible, but with a key difference. Luke 21 from verse five to the end of the chapter is kind of Luke's version of the book of Revelation, uh, if you will. And and there's three big similarities. Uh, First, most obviously, like Revelation, Luke 21 deals with the return of Jesus, the the second coming of Jesus and the end of the world. Uh, Though also like Revelation, it isn't just focused on the end, but on the now, Second, like Revelation, Luke 21 is broadly misunderstood by a lot of people uh, and taken out of context. There's a serious tendency for people to take what Luke 21 says and what Revelation says and to use the words of these parts of the Bible for the exact opposite purpose for which they were written. Uh, And what I mean by that, which we'll get into a bit more, is that both of these parts of the Bible aren't written to shake us and to make us scared and worried. Uh, but actually to give us certainty and assurance in uncertain times. To give us clarity in our hope when things are uncertain. Third and finally, like Revelation, although Luke 21 is one of those parts of the Bible that tends to get avoided uh, because we are intimidated by the themes in it, and although some parts of it are actually quite difficult to understand, the message of the text really isn't inaccessible. If it isn't something we should shy away from, uh, and, and read simply. Uh, sorry, and read simply. It, it gives us a very simple, very clear, very comforting message. It gives us a firm foundation. It says, "Don't panic. Jesus is coming back for you, and He is with you now." Or to be a bit more clearly, a clear. <laughs> to be a bit more clearly, don't panic. Rather, hope. And unlike Douglas Adams' powder finger and cold play, Jesus' reason not to panic really stacks up. It gives real comfort in the face of uncertainty, even when when times do get tough. In fact, in this passage, Jesus is going to give us kind of three sections of big don't panics, Three big reasons, if you will, that although times get hard, we can rest certain that he is in control and he is coming back for us. So let's, let's have, take a step into it now. Um, we get uh, a sense from uh, the content of Jesus' teaching today I'm not, I'm not going to read back all of it, by the way, because it is a fairly hefty passage, and Jeanette did such a lovely job reading it for us already, even with children boffing around down here, so that was great. Um, we get a sense from the content of Jesus' teaching today that although uh, there may have been others listening, his words are mostly directed towards his disciples. Um, in, in the modern day, if you're a Christian, um, someone who follows Jesus, someone who's believed in Jesus, that's us, right? We are the disciples of Jesus today. And our text opens with Jesus shaking the earth out from under the feet of the disciples. His first bit's not really don't panic. His first bit's a bit more of the panic, if you will. Uh, We read that they were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings. Uh, Basically, they're um, looking about themselves and admiring the majesty, the glory of this temple that they're in. Remember, Jesus has been coming and teaching in the temple day by day. And it's worth saying it's, was, it was actually probably fairly majestic from everything that we know. Uh, I mean, we might hear noble stones and offerings and we might think of, of larger than normal Besser blocks, perhaps, you know, and, and, and a couple of 20s lying around the place. Uh, but... Um, one ancient historian, uh, Josephus, we get a lot of useful stuff from Josephus. Uh, he wasn't a Christian, uh, but he did record some interesting stuff for us about Jerusalem. And he recorded that some of the stones that the temple was made of were up to 45 cubits in length. Now cubits, what's a cubit? What's a, is that, are we talking 45? Like one cubit, so 45 cubits. No, um, it's, it, it's, not even, it's, not, it's not even that. Um, 45 cubits, roughly 20 meters. To give you a scope, that's, that's the door to the end of the bar. That's one rock. I don't even know how they shifted that thing. I, like, I, I don't know how we'd shift that today with machinery and stuff, like crane, I suppose, but how would you get it something underneath? Anyway, that's huge, right? It's understandable that you'd be impressed by that. As for the offerings, that that same ancient historian speaks of uh, a golden vine that had been donated to the temple by Herod, a golden vine, like actual gold, not gold colored, a golden vine, an offering which had grape clusters as tall as a man. That won't make any sense on the recording, but anyway. But however impressive the place was, What the disciples of Jesus are doing right now uh, is, as they admire the temple, um, it it jars with what's just happened in Luke, really badly. It it jars with what Jesus has just said. Were you around last week? I wasn't around last week. Last week we covered one of my favourite passages in the whole Gospel of Luke, um, where Jesus looks at the rich making their offerings at the temple. Notice that word there again, the offerings. Uh, and then he points out a poor widow who walks up and, and drops a few cents in the offering. Uh, practically nothing, right? You know, if you, if, you, if you dropped it in our offering box, we'd be like, oh, small week this week. Like, uh, no, not, <laughs> not really. But, but, it's, but it's all she has to give. And, and Jesus says that she's given more than anyone else gave. Because she gave out of her poverty, whereas they were giving out of their riches. I love that passage because because the message is that the sacrifices that God's people make uh, and the worship that we offer up, no matter how pitifully poor or insufficient we are, and in the end we all are, those things are precious to God because they're costly to us. He looks at us and he goes, why that? person's giving out of their poverty. They're giving what costs them to give, and, and, and I'm going to honour that, and I love that. I remember hearing a pastor uh, preaching on this passage one time a few years back now. I think I've actually mentioned this right at the start of this series. as an iconic moment in Gos- Luke's Gospel for me. Um, he spoke on giving from our poverty, not just our riches, worshipping God sacrificially, uh, and, and it was this really moving day for me because that day... It's stuck with me because after the sermon, we sung the song Cornerstone. We don't have it here, but you might know it. It's a Hillsong song. It's based on an older song. Uh, and as I was singing, I just became aware of this guy sitting behind me who was also singing the song. Um, and I'd never heard him sing before. In fact, I'd never heard him speak more than two words in a row before. Um, uh, he's a mentally disabled guy who's, who's unable to string together more than two to three words. The conversations with him go, hey, how are you going? And he would go, how did And do this? That's his sentence structure. That's the most he can manage. Um, and, and yet, uh, in a sound that was entirely out of pitch and two octaves above the normal range, there he was, singing out every word of this song, loudly. Louder than anyone, I think, except for possibly the person on the microphone in the church. Um, giving out of his poverty what we were, were giving out of our riches, what some of us would even refrain from giving out of our riches, from nervousness about our voices maybe, or, or, or fear of being judge, judged by people, self-consciousness. I, I, I don't cry all the time, but that one's still kind of gets to me a bit, and and I did cry that day. It was just such a beautiful picture of what it is to give sacrificially. That the the, the best of his voice and the best of his life and the best of his learning of words went to singing praise to Jesus and nothing else. But, sorry, sorry to preach last week again, but not really, not that sorry, but considering that, that that moment has just been... When Jesus pointed out the widow's offering, uh, notice how jarring it is now that those listening then start to admire the noble stones and offerings of the temple. They don't get it. And clearly their focus is not in the right place. You might remember we're in a pretty critical moment in Luke's gospel. We're very close to the cross here. And Jesus wants to have them prepared as they get to that day. So Jesus goes shot and awe on them to put their focus in place. Jesus says, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Don't focus on the things that are big and impressive, This temple, with all of its architecture, all of its glory, all of its gold, will one day very soon be rubble. And as you might, the disciples are shaken by that, and they ask him, when's this going to happen? And Jesus' answer is mixed. Uh, This is what complicates this passage more than anything else. In the words that follow, Jesus speaks about two days that are to come. The first is the destruction of Jerusalem, which did happen subsequently in AD 70, uh, raised by the Romans, temple destroyed. You know. But then mixed with that, and especially toward the end of the passage, he looks forward to the last day and the last days. And, and the last days in the Bible refers to the time between Jesus first and Jesus' second coming. And so a lot of what he says speaks to specifically the time that we're in now and that has been happening since Jesus ascended to heaven. But again, we have to keep in focus here. Jesus' purpose is not to panic us, ultimately. Jesus' purpose is to shake us out of focusing in the wrong place and instead to put the focus of his people where it belongs and so to give us certainty and to give us confidence when the storms of life do come as they will. So the first part of Jesus' response uh, goes right up to verse 24 uh, and we could summarise that he's saying to be, uh, saying that hard times are coming but don't panic, your God is with you. He starts by saying this, He says, See that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Now, this little section, the reason I read that out, is it sets the trend for most of what's to come. He says, Some things that seem so alarming that we have to fight not to be distracted from the overall message of the passage. People are going to pretend to be the Messiah. I don't know if you've noticed that, but that does actually happen fairly often. Uh, There's going to be wars, he says. There's going to be tumults, uh, which is, I'm, I'm not sure what he's describing exactly there, but I think he's probably referring to big wars. In the subsequent verse, it gets even more intense. Earthquakes will happen famines and pestilence will come nation will rise against nation but here's what we mustn't miss here in the middle of it jesus gives us our first big don't panic and he does it by telling us what not to do when the false messiahs come do not go after them he says when the wars and the tumults come do not be terrified these things must first take place but the end is will not come at once the tendency for many christians even for whole churches and denominations when when the world falls apart has often been to say it's the end times he's coming back now we're in the last days it's finally going to happen um, you know every every major conflict in history has come with a cry of that every since since Jesus ascended, obviously uh, i've lost count of the number of times that people have said to me things like you know I believe we're in the last days now, uh, just look at the way the world is and the things that are happening, often followed by a prediction of of maybe a specific figure in revelation or something um, and, and often people will point to this text to Luke. Uh, 21 and the talk of tumults and wars and other terrible things but do you see what jesus is actually saying here he says these things have to happen but the end is not at once don't get in a knot over these things he says don't let your attention go excessively to these things he says the end isn't yet What I believe Jesus is saying here and goes on to explain in most of this passage is that the time between his first coming and his second coming will be marked by this kind of stuff the whole way through. There will be wars. There will be earthquakes. There will be earth-shattering things that happen and we'll be tempted to think, this is it. But actually, these things will happen sometimes more, sometimes less all the time until jesus comes back paul says in romans 8 that all of creation is groaning together with the pains of childbirth with expectation of the new creation we can expect that the world will look like this like it is in agony until the day of jesus return don't panic he's coming back But now, see see the next practical application that Jesus gives us here. And and I'm sorry, I should have said at the start, we're going to fly through some of this. This is a huge text. I'm going to have so many people come up to me afterwards and say, John, you didn't specifically address this specific part of the text. Feel free. Love to have that conversation. Um, But see this practical bit. He's he's talked about uh, general calamity, wars, earthquakes and such, but now he focuses in, in verse 12 to 19, uh, on the intense persecution that Christians can expect specifically and it's worth saying this is the experience of the vast majority of the church uh, both in that early New Testament period and throughout history really throughout the ages we have to be so cautious of thinking that we're immune to this uh, that we live in the blessed country and so this will never happen to us or that our priority and this is probably more our danger that, that our priority would should be avoiding this kind of persecution this might seem a little intense to say, but church, we need to be a people ready for things to get hard for Christians and who are ready to remain faithful to the gospel when the world turns against Jesus. Western society is doing that at the moment in a large way. And you'll notice uh, the term, I don't know if you're in social media, but the term exvangelical has become a thing. I'm suspecting it'll, it'll be one of those added to the di- dictionary next year's. Um, the, the idea of people who were prominent evangelicals who just bailed out and said, no, no, I don't believe it anymore. Um, You know, you've had some really prominent people do that. uh, And I think a large part of it is our churches haven't been ready. Um, It's also that our churches have been, you know, it's been easy to be a Christian. It's been easy to get um, prominence and fame from being a Christian. And so as it becomes less popular to be a Christian, it becomes less okay for the person who did it for the fame to be a Christian. But, uh, But it's also, we haven't, We haven't preached this. We haven't known this. We haven't, or if we have preached it, we haven't reckoned with it in our own hearts that persecution is a normal part of the Christian life. But notice, Jesus doesn't just say, persecution's coming. Again, again, we can get distracted by the panic and miss miss the don't in the don't panic. He gives us our second big don't panic moment. He says, this will be your opportunity. Jesus gives us a really helpful shift in our mentality here, a much needed change of perspective for the church. We tend to think of persecution, of of ridicule or of worse things like being ostracised from society, losing jobs, even imprisonment. And we think this is an end that has to be avoided at all costs. I want to share the gospel, but I'd at least really rather it didn't happen at such a personal cost to me. But Jesus says, persecution is your opportunity to witness. It's a doorway that God is giving you. Persecution isn't to be viewed as defeat, but as chance to declare And this shift in perspective comes with two promises, really precious promises that we can lean into. First, Jesus says that when we are persecuted, when we face those opportunities to witness uh, about the truth of Jesus, he will be there giving us words to speak. Jesus says, settle it it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. Uh, one, One thing that's unclear in that sentence is what the word, meditate means, whether it means don't think at all about how you will respond or just, and I think this fits more more cohesively with the text, don't anxiously dwell on it. So I'm inclined to think the latter, especially because Peter says, you know, we must be prepared to make a defence for the hope that is in us. But then the second promise we get here is that the end of such a life A persecuted life declaring the truth isn't defeat. He says, your endurance will gain your lives. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. And and this was the experience of the early church. And of the church throughout history, as we've said. In fact, um, we see again and again the disciples dragged before authorities, uh, Stephen before the Sanhedrin in the book of Acts, uh, Paul before governors and kings, and then on his way to Rome to stand before Caesar. Um, to, they would have heard of these words of Jesus at that point. The Gospels hadn't probably been written uh, for some of that time, but, but the, uh, the words of Jesus had been shared amongst the disciples very early on. Imagine the comfort it must have been to those guys. That Jesus had said these words, that he'd given these promises. Imagine how much it must have driven them, driven Paul, when he decides to just keep going and going and going, you know, to go back to Jerusalem, even though he's been warned, you're going to be imprisoned and they're going to shackle you and take you away. Um, but he knew that Jesus had promised, this is your opportunity. Jesus will see that in the end, this leads to glory for me, not defeat. Um, You know, one biblical example that leaps to mind is is the Philippian church, right? And and Paul says that they rejoiced at the plundering of their possessions. Um, they, they, They considered it an honor to be worthy to suffer for Jesus, and they did it because they wanted him to be glorified and they trusted him bit more of a modern day example. Um, does anyone here know or know of a fella named Grant Locke? Um, we've got some Air Peninsula people over here. You guys are from Air, you're from Air Peninsula originally aren't you, Eric? Do you know Grant, do you know of Grant? Right. It's a big area, yes. Air Peninsula. Grant Locke, yes. the Locke family, CMS missionary? That's all right. Um, he's an EP cattle farmer originally. Grant yep, and Barry, yeah. Grant and Barry, that's right. Um, he, went, he went on cross-cultural mis- mission um, Pakistan and Afghanistan for decades of his life Um, so if you're a if you're a cattle farmer who thinks that you can't be a missionary for Jesus talk to Grant Locke Um, and he tells a a story somewhere in one of his books about a uh, 17 year old girl uh, who was a Christian student in in Pakistan I'm fairly sure it was Pakistan not Afghanistan. Um, and a young woman living in a country where actual penalties come for uh, converting to Christianity, believing in Jesus, let alone sharing the, new, the news about Jesus. Um, and one of her classes, her lecturer gets up and just starts pulling apart Christianity and ridiculing us and saying that, you know, these guys believe in three gods. How crazy is that? The Trinity doesn't make sense. And, and, and she sees her opportunity... Because she's a Christian and someone's ridiculing Jesus. So she steps into this gap and defends the Christian faith. And, and reflecting on that, Grant asks this question. Uh, I'm sorry, I don't have the exact wording from him. Uh, but he asks, Australian Christians often say we're looking for chances to talk to someone about Jesus. But would many of us have sat in that classroom and considered that the opportunity that we've been asking God for? You know, when the teacher gets up, uh, upon hearing them say that Christianity is foolish and ridiculous, a bad religion, just one that makes no sense, we worship three gods, would we have immediately reacted by thinking, this is my chance. Yes, thank you, God. I'm a little bit challenged by that idea. It's what Jesus says. He says, this is our chance. Don't worry. I've got you till the end. In the next paragraph of Luke, Jesus speaks specifically to the coming destruction of Jerusalem. And these words are more specific to the time. And we're not going to linger at all in this part of the text. Um, but it is just worth noting that early church history does tell us that it was upon the basis of these words that a great many Christians didn't fall with Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus says, when you see it surrounded, run for the hills, or or the text could be, when you see it being surrounded, run for the hills, Uh, go for the mountains. Um, The the immediate reaction of many was close the walls and hide in the city, but Christians knew that Jesus had said this. When the armies of Rome surrounded the city, besieged it, and eventually took it, destroying the temple in the process, most of the Christians weren't there. But then moving on uh, into the final section of this passage, the description of the period uh, leading up to the end, um, the years between Jesus' first and second coming, it intensifies even more. Um, And a lot of people have a lot of trouble with these verses, uh, but I just want to throw them at you in two parts. First, uh, I'm going to give you my interpretation of the tricky bits. Um, uh, We'll get that out of the way. There are lots of tricky bits. I'll I'll give you some of the key ones at least. Uh, But then, and this is what we must not miss, we'll look at what can clearly and obviously be seen in these last verses, in these most challenging ones, which people often do miss because they're focusing on the tricky stuff exclusively. So first, Jesus describes a time of great upheaval, upheaval leading up to the arrival of the Son of Man. Uh, and, and his second coming into the world, uh, the day when Jesus returns to judge and to bring in the new creation. And, and what's tricky here is primarily whether Jesus is describing a short period of time or a long period of time. Um, he is, is he describing a short period just before he comes back? Or is he again just describing things that will happen between now and the day when we see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with power and glory? Um, and, the, um, and I think that, again, he is describing not the brief period. I, I think the, the clearest reading of this is that Uh, The whole period between his two comings, between his resurrection and ascension and and then between his return is in view here. And the reason I say that is first that he gives this metaphor of the signs of the end, that it's like a fig tree. And when you see the leaves come out, you know summer is near. So he's saying when you see the signs that the sun is coming back, you know he is near. But then he says this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. And I read a whole bunch of novel takes on this during the week. That's probably the most tricky sentence in this whole thing. Um, but, but in the end, I think it's by far the simplest to conclude that Jesus is saying all of these things, uh, distressing things in the sky, distressing things in the sea, things that seem like they will consume the world, will happen before this generation's out, and they will keep happening until the end. You're going to see the signs that we are in the end times now before you all die. That's Jesus speaking to these people 2,000 years ago. Still true today. And the truth of it stacks up and, and it will make sense when we look at the obvious part of the text. Uh, second reason though, um, because he says that these signs will happen uh, because or for uh, in, in verse... Um, in verse I've left out the number um, he said he says for the powers of heaven will be shaken 26. thank you James uh, and I think the clearest uh, shake-up of heavenly powers that he could be referring to there is the cross and the resurrection of Jesus that was just about to happen after which he was declared to be the son of God with power Paul writes after which he ascended to his throne and now reigns. But the best reason why that's the interpretation, why it's the whole period, is is the obvious part of the text, Uh, the woods we shouldn't miss for the sake of the trees here. Notice that Jesus isn't just giving a predictive description of events. He's not giving a, a preemptive history here. But rather, he's giving a description of two different reactions to events. In verse 26, uh, 25 and 26, he doesn't just say there will be signs in the sky and stuff like that. He says that there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. People are going to panic. Jesus is saying. He's saying when the world goes pear-shaped when it all seems to be coming apart, which it will again and again and again and again and again, the people of the world don't know what to do with that. I mean, uh, over the last 25 years, the oceans have apparently risen uh, ab- ab- about six inch- six, six centimetres centimeters globally. Now, I'm not, I'm not trying to weigh either side of a global warming discussion here, uh, that's, that's not my role today. Um, but but what I would say is look at the fear and panic that that has inspired It's about that to give you a context of, of what we're flipping out about um, I'm not saying that's not something we should be concerned about. I'm so not saying it is something I'm just saying look at the distress of, no, of nations that comes with the roaring of the seas or really with the slight increase of the level of the seas uh, and 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 that just makes sense because that's a rhythm we've seen this this rhythm of fear and panic in the world since jesus first coming when earthquakes tsunamis wars even uh eclipses you know happen there have been terrified predictions of doom and there has been distress on the earth and people fainting from distress but jesus says we should not react in that way church He says every apparently terrible sign of destruction should ultimately be a reminder to us that this world is passing away and a better one is coming. He says, now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And he says, so also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Christians, we need not be swept up in the fear that grips the world. Catastrophes act as signs to us that Jesus is still on his way and hope is not yet reached but is certainly coming. And I, I should just quickly qualify this and say that I'm not saying that, that we should ignore government regulations when we're told to uh, take measures, for instance, uh, to prevent the spread of a pandemic. We should take those measures, but not out of, of a grip of fear on our hearts, but out of cheerful, undaunted love for our neighbours. Because ultimately when terrible things happen, we can remember, don't panic, Jesus is coming back for us. We can live in hope. We have a hope in the risen Jesus that carries us through every trial, every persecution, every natural disaster, every uh, everything. Because all these things remind us that he will return and he will make everything right and so even death is not defeat for us. We have the hope that God loves us with an undefeatable love which will bring us through. We've got a kid's Bible. We've actually read it a few times at church for different kids spots way back when, but uh, that, that uses this phrase again and again and again and I love it. it's, it's, God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. It can't be overcome. He will win, and he will win in love for his people. We can be certain of his goodwill for us, in fact, because he gave his only Son Jesus, to secure the way to our salvation. We can echo with Paul the words of Romans 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who can bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, even now. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or sword, or danger? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed. All the day long we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. Let me, let me chuck a final word in here, which is if you uh, haven't known that hope that is in Jesus, the certain ground amidst every storm and chaos of this world, it can be yours by faith. If you trust him to save you, if you throw yourself on him and acknowledge that you're not enough and you're a sinner who needs him, he will be faithful. He is good and faithful and a good Lord, and he will save you. And on that note, would you pray with me? Jesus, we live in such an uncertain world and yet you are the solid rock upon which we stand. We ask that you would set us firm on the rock. We ask that you would lead us to be a people who don't panic because we know you've got us, because we know we have undefeatable hope, imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for us. We have you. And Father, if you did not spare your only son, but sent him to save us, gave him for our rescue, how will you not also give us all things? Lord, we just want to praise you and thank you And ask that you would lead us to be a people who live in hope. Who see persecution as an opportunity for the spread of your word. Who live in the costly worship that you've called us to. Because we live in hope of a better day that is to come. And we live knowing that our saviour is with us now. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.